0: Welcome to the PEED centered Podcast. I'm your host, Michelle Allatag, and today I'm going to be talking about transport medicine with Dr. Matt Harris. Dr. Harris is an assistant professor of pediatrics at the Zucker School of Medicine and is triple boarded in pediatrics, pediatric emergency medicine, and emergency medical services. He's also the director of the transport team at Cohen Children's Hospital in Long Island, New York. Welcome, Dr. Harris.
1: Hey, thanks for having me.
0: All right, so let's start off with talking about the varying levels of pre-hospital and transport certifications, because there are quite a few of them. Or just to rephrase that, when we're calling for transport or are receiving a patient, what skills will the team have who's bringing our patients to us?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. So there is a whole host of pre-hospital providers that might transport children who or from a children's facility or another emergency department. It really depends on how we match resources to patients. So um, with our EMS clinicians, there are several uh, levels of EMS clinicians. The most common is the EMT or the emergency medical technician. These talented Mm -hmm. providers can provide very basic care, oxygen, transport, um, supportive care in terms of splinting and icing for injured extremities, and some medications really limited to things like epinephrine or albuterol for status asthmaticus, but really are meant for hemodynamically stable patients. For patients who are more complex, who have a greater degree of medical needs, you might get a paramedic. So paramedics have about a year and a half to two years of training, and they can do most of what we can do in the emergency department. They can start and maintain IVs. Uh, They can give medications, including narcotics and IV fluids. Um, So they really are able to handle the spectrum of care for most patients who are not uh, super critical. And that's a skill set that really has to be defined uh, by by the referring provider. When you go up in complexity of the patients, and depending on where you are throughout the U.S., uh, you'll often then escalate to a critical care transport nurse. And these yes. nurses really uh, very often have experience in the emergency department, in the PICU, and the NICU, and can perform that really high-level clinical exam and interventions um, that might be needed. Probably the highest level of care, uh, though the most rare, involves the full team of EMS clinicians, transport nurses, a respiratory therapist, and th- then a transport provider like a neonatologist for a clinical neonate or a uh, ICU attending or fellow emergency medicine fellow or attending. And those are meant to really for the sickest of the sick, the ECMO referrals, the intubated septic patients. Right. So we try to match resources with patients.
0: And then we do also have another option, and that is to completely cut out the need for pre-hospital or transport team and just send kits with their family from uh, via private vehicles and either from the scene or facility to facility transports. So what are the risks and benefits of choosing that route instead of arranging for transport?
1: So, you know, going by personal vehicle has its pros and cons. I think certainly uh, there are costs with going by ambulance that should be perhaps secondary to their medical needs. Um, But if you have a hemodynamically stable patient who, for example, has, you know, a complicated laceration on their hand and needs a hand surgeon or needs to see ophthalmology, but doesn't require an acute intervention, and you're confident that the caregiver will, in fact, show up at your hospital and take them to the pretty appropriate facility, I think it's reasonable to go by by car. You obviously run the risk that they can get hurt in route, that the parent might opt not to go. And as the referring mm-hmm. physician, as the sending physician, that's a legal responsibility you have. So I think it's definitely in the right setting with the right patients and the right parents. Um, I think it's a conversation worth having.
0: Yeah. And that actually leads me to another question uh, that I wanted to ask you. Whose care are legally our patients under when they are in transport?
1: Great question. A little bit gray. So uh, the letter of the law due to mTala, right, which is the Emergency Medical Treatment and Labor Act, Mm -hmm. states that the sending physician is responsible for all care that happens from the moment the child leaves the referring institution until, in fact, they arrive at the receiving center. Mm -hmm. Now, what is common, however is that when children's transport teams come out, for example, our, our transport team from Cohen Children's um, in New Hyde Park, New York, when my transport team arrives there, because the, our, ambulance, our ambulance is based out of our hospital, The four walls of our hospital expand with our ambulance. So when my team gets there, they'll often take over clinical care. And the reality is most referring physicians are thrilled to have uh, a pediatric-focused team take over the care of patients. Um, However, if you're sending somebody by EMS, perhaps, or you don't have an agreement with with a receiving institution... The letter of the law says that the sending physician is, is legally responsible, and that's not just for the type of care they receive, ALS, BLS, or critical care, but their mode of transportation, should they go by helicopter because it's a trauma and it's two hours by car. So the MTALA says it's the sending physician, gets a little gray when you have a hospital-based children's team, specialized transport teams, who may be able to take over care sooner.
0: You just talked about modes of transport a little bit. Can we talk a little bit more about that? So you and I are currently working in a region with pretty short geographical distances between specialty centers, but where road traffic can be a huge factor for us, depending on time of day, day of the week, And we've also both worked in areas with massive distances uh, distances between care centers and geographical barriers like mountains and deserts and blizzards, poorly maintained roads, access issues, you know, all kinds of things. So can you talk about our options for transport and why in general should we pick a helicopter over an ambulance or think about fixed wing transport?
1: Yeah, so I think I'll even start a step earlier that what's become really critical in interfacility transport is how can we actually help keep kids in place and prevent unnecessary transport, right? So if you are receiving a phone call in your emergency department for a kid with a you know simple elbow fracture that we know is not going to require surgery that may be okay in a splint with follow-up and orthopedics, you may actually be able to prevent through things like telehealth either, you know, on a computer, or even just by phone and reviewing the images, you know, through uh, WhatsApp or some other appropriate app application that protects PHI, um, we might actually be able to prevent some transport by just keeping them in place. Now, if you're going to send someone to the hospital, again, you have to think, is is the mode going to be necessary? And is it safe? Now, all three modes of transport ground, fixed wing, um, and rotor wing or helicopter are safe and appropriate. And, and you know, with respect to the situation, right? So ground ambulances can go about 350 miles in a single trip without stopping for gas. And they're really for the most part, all weather, right? You know, barring the exceptional closure of Mm -hmm. the one highway over the mountain, they can typically get through most and, you know, is often very safe for most patients. Now, if you have a really critical patient, again, we might have to ask ourselves, how can we support that patient in the environment they're in until there's an opportunity for safe transport? We saw that a lot with some of the big hurricanes down south when we just physically couldn't get into places like New Orleans to help evacuate, right? Mm -hmm. Helicopter transport, which with some degree of frequency in New York, comes down to two things: time acuity, and distance, right So you mentioned that in New York City, you clearly don't need a helicopter to move from you know one part of the city to the other, let alone the fact you can't technically land a helicopter in New York City unless you're in, uh, in law enforcement. But in our catchment area, which goes upstate, which goes to Connecticut, New Jersey and Long Island, we'll sometimes say that it's actually we have we have certain guidelines, we follow traffic and weather to say, hey, look, this critical neonate who's 70 miles out east, I can have my team in a helicopter there in 22 minutes, but it takes an hour to get there. So the 40 minutes saved in Mm -hmm. both directions based on time, acuity and distance would dictate to have the helicopter when, you know, weather is permitting. There are also time-dependent problems, right? More commonly in adult world with stroke, dissecting aortas, but even in pediatrics, you know, we'll send a helicopter to places like Staten Island or way out east for things like testicular torsion or ovarian torsion uh, because they're a time-sensitive diagnosis and the helicopter, the 30 minutes it might save during rush hour. You know, might be the difference between saving a testicle or an ovary or not. So time, distance, and yeah. acuity. Flight, we should be clear, is for this is for distance, right? For for fixed swing, it's for distance only. Because it takes a long time to mobilize an airplane. Typically hospitals aren't on the runway, so it really is for distance transports only.
0: Yeah. And from a patient aspect, when is our best option not to transport? Meaning, you talked about, can we avoid it because, you know, their issues may be lower acuity or manageable without them having to be transported. When are they too critical to transport?
1: So that depends on the resource coming to get them. And it's an important question. You know, there is literature about transporting patients even in active cardiac arrest, right? But that puts both the patient's, and the EMS clinicians and the transport staff at risk, right? because standing up mm-hmm. during transport to do CPR is really unsafe. Um, so so while there's some discussion about that, most transport teams will not continue CPR uh, into the ambulance and move forward unless it's really something that's very, very salvageable and close by. You know, for critical care transport teams, it's very little that we won't move, right? I think especially you know once in a while you'll come across a critical neonate. Very premature 23 weeks, who every time you move them, they go into cardiac arrest. And then you have to have a goals of care discussion with the parents. And how can we provide support to the referring facility? So it might be that that patient can't be moved, right? That they're not going to survive, that the act of transport itself may be too, too dangerous, and that moving them to the definitive care actually won't improve their outcome. And those are important conversations to have with the parents and the referring physician.
0: Yeah. And, and I'll say just anecdotally, having had an experience like this, it was a, it was a big discussion with myself, the transport team, the intensivist. Yeah, I was at a um, satellite facility. Our transport team was there in a helicopter, but we had a patient who was in active CPR. And the decision eventually was made, even though the idea was to try to transfer her to an ECMO center, it, the safety risks for the transport team outweighed the potential benefit of getting her onto ECMO and the time was going to be pretty extensive. So it was a very nuanced conversation and really took all of us kind of discussing as a team to make that decision, which was a very hard one to make.
1: Yeah, I can imagine. And I think, again, that's why we really try to hone in on where transport teams can make a clinical difference and where they can't. And the reality is you did make a clinical difference, right? You spared uh, not just the transport team, the risk that you're putting them through, uh, but you spare the family, I think, the the potential for, you know, again, dying in the back of an ambulance, dying in the back of the helicopter. You know, that puts, that's. there's an emotional risk that comes to that as well, where I think showing them that you've provided the definitive care. And sometimes our transport team shows up to be that affirmative service and say, look, we agree that the referring doc did the right thing calling us, but at this point, you've done everything you can. And we, as the Children's Hospital, uh, the full the full force of the Children's Hospital at the bedside here, feel that there's nothing else to offer your child.
0: Yeah. So switching tracks a little bit, I, I want to talk about thinking about our transport and pre hospital colleagues when we're making our decisions. You know, we just talked about using their expertise to help us guide our clinical care, but also thinking about the safety. I'll say I'm married to a former EMT, and he actually taught me the EMS mantra of prioritizing your safety and care when you're working in pre-hospital medicine. And that is that you have to prioritize, one, yourself, then number two, your partner, then number three, your patient. So that's actually something I really try to remember when I'm requesting transport for any of my patients, and especially my patients who have altered mental status or behavioral health emergencies who might become a danger or escalate. And I feel an obligation to think about the safety of my transport colleagues when I'm handing off the care of that patient um, who might get out of control, might try to flee or do any number of things in this enclosed rig that could put everyone at risk. So can you sort of help us with that decision tree? How do we judge who needs to be taking patients who might escalate or might pose a danger to the transport team?
1: It's a really important question, right? Because behavioral health emergencies are becoming more common in the emergency department and how we keep our transport um, team safe and how we keep the, the patient safe, most importantly, uh, is really something that we want to try to optimize. The reality is that, you know, these patients ultimately do need to be moved, right? They're typically being moved because the facility that has them um, can facilitate their ongoing care. So what's really important is to just have that that, that safety pause, right? Mm-hmm. So we have a pre-departure safety checklist, both for medical patients and for behavioral health patients, we ask ourselves, you know, what are the triggers for this patient? What do we know from the patient or their caregiver, their yeah. parents, the, the emergency medicine physician at the scene? What do we know that has been calming? What do we know that's been triggering? Is this a patient that's going to require some sort of ongoing care to prevent them from escalating, right? So whether that is a physical restraint, which I think we think long and hard about before we restrain anyone in transport, or all the psychosocial reasons that we try not to restrain children in the emergency department, even more so in the back of a moving ambulance where the environment's static. But sometimes it's for the patient safety and the crew safety that, that needs to happen. But that really requires that physician's insight and a direct order from them to do so, right? There are some patients that will benefit from some degree of anxiolysis, right? Can I get away with some oral Versed? Um, or some other chemical anxiolysis that allows the patient to participate. And that's actually where oral meds work really well. It's an active role by the patient at something, a given intramuscular, which might be you know, something mm-hmm. that they're not actively participating in. Yeah. You know, very, very rarely do we need to give. Uh, intramuscular medications, intravenous medications, because there's such an acute threat to themselves or others. Um, and when that happens, we just have to make sure we have the right providers there to protect their airway if need be, which is rare. Um, but I think we do our best to de-escalate verbally and then, f- then de-escalate through uh, mechanical means and ultimately through chemical means if we need to. But this is really important, especially when transport distances are long.
0: Yeah. Do you feel that an EMT only crew is appropriate for kids in behavioral health emergency? I have an opinion on this, but I want to hear what yours is.
1: You know. It, it really depends, right? So let's be clear in terms of scope of practice that EMTs can't give medications, right? So you And giving a medication if your physician gives it prior, uh, you want to make sure that if you're giving something that's going to cause some degree of sedation, you want to make sure that the, the the clinician taking them, the EMT has the tools and the, and the scope of practice to monitor them. So if you're giving someone an anxiolytic, keep in mind, most EMTs don't track things like end-tidal CO2. It's not in their scope. So... No, so I think right. there is that consideration. Um, the rest of it has a lot to do with, um, number one, what their abilities to escalate, right? And number two, what's their experience been? I, I have some EMTs who have worked you know, on children's transport teams for 20 years, and they're phenomenal of children. On the other hand, uh, there are a lot of sort of fresh new EMTs out there that are new to the game that... You know, children in general make up less than 10% of EMS runs nationwide. And um, I think you and I both know the challenges of of getting a child to trust you and that skill set. And that that might be something you find more um, in paramedics simply because it takes longer to become a paramedic. You tend to have more time in EMS. Um, So I guess I would probably bias towards having a paramedic there just because I think they're the likelihood they've had more pediatric experiences there.
0: Yeah, and and... I'll throw my opinion out there, too, just because I like to give opinions that are completely unfounded and based on only my personal experience. If generally our behavioral health patients have been with us for quite some time by the time they're transported, that, you know, that depends on facility and on the patient. But, you know, if I know my patient has been in the ED and really hasn't had any escalations or behavior issues that have been very calm and cooperative the entire time, they are... Not opposed to being transferred to a mental health facility because opposition to that can create escalation, especially when it's time to go. You know, if I know those things, then I feel a lot more comfortable about going with an EMT service only. But I do also talk to the team and say, you know, are you comfortable with this? And you know, they can give me a yes or a no. Well, that's that's sort of how I handle it. But yeah, I agree. We, we, t- we tend to think about, oh, we don't want to waste resources, but we also don't want to create a problematic situation by trying to sort of skimp on resources either.
1: Right. We should be clear to that. It might not be a choice, right? Depending on where you are in the country, you might only have a BLS service available to you. So you work uh, with the team that you have. And I think, again, it's that important yeah. discussion before transport of, hey, they've been with us for three days. They've been great. They've been calm. These are trigger words. These are trigger events. So I think creating that situational awareness for the team and also, again, engaging the patient, right? This is the team that's going to help take care of you until you get there, you know, because they're coming in. They're dressed in uniforms that are often conflated with law enforcement. Yeah. So I think prepping them for what that is, I think, is really important.
0: Yeah. And just expanding that to general care for all of our patients, um, not just behavioral health patients, but medical patients as well. You know, we've talked about this a little bit, but not all pre-hospital or transport teams really have the skills or equipment to care for pediatric patients. It's not the bulk of what they do. A lot of it depends on the company and what their allocation of resources are towards pediatric care. You know, we often f- even find that transporting kids who need to be in a car seat can become a logistical issue because they're not stocked by the um, transport carrier provider. What are some means that we can ensure that we're handing off care to a team that has the ability to deal with the needs of our small patients? And maybe talk about that on an in-the-moment transport case-by-case basis and systems-wide. What
1: are things that we can do as physicians? Yeah. So I'll I'll address the second question first, right? So I think for medical directors of emergency departments and CMOs of hospitals, you actually have an affirmative obligation to contract with companies that can, you know, provide appropriate and safe transport. And safe transport in EMS is a really, really hot topic, especially for pediatrics right now, because while there are several companies out there that produce um, transport harnesses for kids, none of them have actually been tested. None of them are, are, are approved by like a national accreditation body. And that's some active work that's going on right now with with groups like the National Association of EMS Physicians, the American Academy of Pediatrics. But you do have an obligation to vet the service, right? You are responsible for that patient until they get to that hospital, right? So if they are transported in a seat that doesn't keep them safe and an accident happens, you could be held liable, right? This is something that yeah. uh, really can come back to you as the referring physician. So there's an affirmative responsibility for medical leadership to work with their local transport agencies and help number one, educate them. They may not know, right? This is a topic that's evolving. So help them educate, advocate right. for resources, help, you know, whether it's a parent car seat or some of these straps. And again, I have no connection to any of these companies, but you know, both Stryker, Inferno, and other companies make these straps that are five-point harnesses for kids um, over mm-hmm. a certain weight, well, through a certain gestational age. And so you should work with them again, even though they're not approved or accredited by. A national service they are out there and their, their vetting process is underway <laughs> but again for the individual provider in the moment you know i think it's really important to say is it safe to transport them this way so it's not uncommon that ems services put them on the parents lap that's a big no-no right that's that is yes. not safe to get into an accident they will hurt um so it might be that look i'm going to send dad home even if it's an hour away to get a car seat for a non-critical patient right um, I might say, I need, I need this company to go get that one five-point harness that they have in storage somewhere to safely transport this patient. I'm not going to release them until you do. Because if you don't have a safe way to do it, and obviously you have to weigh this against the criticality of the patient, the time-sensitive diagnosis of the patient, but you do have a, an affirmative action in the moment to make sure that that's part of your care treatment, right? How are they going? By ground, mm-hmm. by air, if they're going, either of the modalities, how are they being appropriately restrained?
0: Yeah, you mentioned a safety checklist, and I think thinking in that sort of safety checklist mindset when you're arranging transport in the beginning is helpful. You know, asking, you know, often times you're talking to dispatch, but they'll they'll know. Do you have, you know, my patient potentially needs to be bagged because you know they they might have an episode of apnea? Do you have, you know, this size mask and. What kind of bags do you have? Do you have self-inflating? Do you, you know? Do you have what I think you need? I think my patient potentially could need these five things. Do you have them? One of them being car seat. <laughs> we do need to ask about that, or we can ask the parents if they have the car seats with them and can use them. But thinking about those things because right. I I cannot count the number of times when I've had a team arrive and say, oh, they didn't, they didn't even tell us that this patient was only 12 kilos. I only have equipment down to 25 kilos. I'm very anxious about transporting this patient. Can you tell me that it's okay? And that's not the optimal situation for any of us.
1: Right. Right. So so I should say that there are national standards for equipment. There are state standards for equipment that serve as a floor, right? The minimum amount you have to be in service. Um, and that often has most of the pediatric equipment you might think of, what it lacks for sure is neonatal equipment. That's very, very difficult to come by in a non-neonatal specialized transport team. Um, and yeah. and while there's recommendations, there's no requirements per se for specific transport um, seats, car seats, restraints, and so where they just typically says age appropriate and weight appropriate. So to your point, when you're calling in for that transport, making sure you say, hey, this is a you know a one-year-old 20-pound, 10-kilo baby you know, who's going to need to go, you know, go by ground, you can affirmatively ask that, right? Do you have car seats or do I need to have the parent go get one? Some hospitals will choose to purchase, you know, five or 10 car seats to keep in the ER for this very reason. Um, I know that's something we did back in our prior institution out in the uh, on the mountains. So I think that there, there are ways around this that might come at a small cost, but a tremendous safety benefit to the patient.
0: Absolutely. Can we move on to the financial implications of transport decisions? I feel like this is sort of a a big one that we've been dancing around a little bit. I think the prior discussion, you know, I know that we shouldn't be letting the ability to pay factor into our medical decisions. I mean, that is that's very not acceptable for us to be doing. But from a practical standpoint, the reality is I would feel a tremendous sense of guilt If a family that I was caring for got stuck with a multi-thousand-dollar bill for transport that I had chosen because I wasn't thinking about finances. So can you talk about the costs of various types of transport and should we be factoring that into our decisions?
1: I think that financial consequences are important to discuss with parents, especially when it's a request for transfer by parent request and not necessarily medical necessity, right? (laughs) So typically insurance will cover the costs of transfer to any institution when the referring institution does not have the ability to provide that service, right? So you have appendicitis and there is no pediatric surgeon. You have uh, Uh ophthalmologic emergency and there's no ophthalmologist typically. And that's why documentation is so important on the emergency department provider side. Um, when you're doing lateral transfers, so for example, one children's hospital to another children's hospital for parental preference, often insurance will reject those um, uh, in, unless they're being repatriated to that, to that health system because that's the insurance's desire to move them over. But any escalation in care is pretty, is pretty typical um, and pretty typically covered couple of nuances for those of you who are practicing in more rural aspects of the U.S. or parts around the world, you know, aeromedical transport um, is very, very costly. Ground transport, you know, maybe a couple hundred or a couple thousand dollars, uh, which is not a small amount of money, but aeromedical transport can range from helicopters from twenty-five to $50,000 per flight, and for fixed wing, can, depending on how far you're going, can be up to $100,000, about more.
0: All right. And with that, we will wrap it up for today. Thank you so much for joining me.
1: Hey, thanks for having me.